Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, the podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We're here today with our friend Sarah Zagorski, who's got a fascinating story. She is with a group called Pro-Life Louisiana and has authored an article in an upcoming book on abortion entitled Choosing Life, which is, a, I think, a, the best way to describe that is a series of essays that's designed to sort of hand off the pro-life discussion to the next generation of folks. Uh, and her chapter is entitled Surviving Abortion. And I have to admit, Sarah, this was when I read through the table of contents in my pre-publication copy of the book, yours was the first chapter that I went to because wow. it was so, the, just the, the title of the chapter was so arresting to me. I said, I've got to read about this story. And it, and it did not disappoint. It was an incredibly compelling story. And so, Sarah, welcome. We're so glad to have you on with us and to, to hear about uh, not only your experience, but what you learned from that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I just, um, I'm so overwhelmed by God's great grace and love for us. And, um, you know, I think, I, I believe he's going to use my story for good, as painful as it was, um, as long the journey was. I I do believe in the end it will save lives. So I'm so thankful for the opportunity to share more with that with your listeners today. So here, you you survived an attempted abortion. I don't think I don't think many of our listeners actually know someone who can who can make that claim, but I'm I'm sure there's there's just this incredible story behind that. So I'm going to get out of the way and just let you tell us that story about how you survived an abortion. Sure. So um, my birth mother, um, she was a Hispanic immigrant from Honduras. She became pregnant with me and the pregnancy was the result of a, an affair. Um, she had a relationship with a, a doctor in, in New Orleans and um, she was in crisis. And what I, I discovered over time is she was a woman uh, vulnerable to abortion. And most of the women that choose abortion today actually are a lot like her. She already had children at the time. She was struggling financially. She lived in poverty. Um, her kids all had experienced foster care. At some point in their life, she was a recipient of now, food me, Meaning they'd experienced foster care in that they'd been re removed from the home? Correct. So okay. she, uh, they uh, had been placed in foster care by the state because of her mental health issues and because of the extreme poverty we lived in. So she had all of these circumstances going on upon finding out she was pregnant with me. And I believe, you know, she also was a woman who had, had two previous abortions before her pregnancy with me, which is really important because what we know about women who choose abortion is once they've chosen it the first time, it's often easier for them to choose it again. Hmm. Not, so, not surprising. Yeah. So she had had two previous ab abortions in her history. Um, and she was looking for help. And she had a friend of hers that referred her to a physician who was known for helping women in poverty, women like her. And he was an abortionist. His name was Dr. Akpalabi. He was an abortionist who at the time was under medical review um, by Louisiana's board for performing a botched abortion that left, you know, the remains of a baby in a woman's uterus. And she ended up having a full hysterectomy because of that. But she went to him um, with me at 26 and a half weeks. And he actually induced labor and delivered me breach at that age. And I wasn't breathing when I was born. And she advised him or he advised her, sorry, to uh, let me die on the table. 
And I believe, you know, I think when I, I've gone over this story so many times in my mind in that moment, and the question I always come to is, wow, how did you find the courage to resist him? Because what happened was she said, no, I'm going to sue you if you don't get my daughter breathing again. Wow. It's my belief, you know, it's my strong belief. She passed away in 2010 and we had many conversations prior to her death about about the decision to see him in the first place because I was very obviously devastated upon finding that out and had to do, do some identity, you know, stuff with myself about that. But I realized she was simply afraid and she felt she had no choice. And then upon seeing me, she I believe it it was that moment of time she realized I can't do this that despite the circumstances I'm in, I have to choose life now. Even, uh, though, or, even though she had done this twice before. before right. And also a little background on her. She had been attending a church uh, in the city where she actually, I know it's really hard sometimes to even follow, but she had met my foster mom there and had a community of people who were very vocal about the pro-life issue. And I don't, I'm not able to go into some of those details in my chapter, but I believe it's her an encounter with Christ um, prior to this and her relationships with some people in her life that gave her the courage to resist him, um, in, in part at least. Uh, so she did. She said, I'm going to sue you if you don't get my daughter breathing again. And I was sent to Children's Hospital Trauma Birth Ward in New Orleans where I did recover. But that was really, you know, just the very beginning of, of my whole, I, I would say my whole pro-life story because I um, did struggle from that point on in some, in some severe ways. And um, that's just the short, you know, that's the short version that I kind of open with in my chapter. I start talk, I talk about that experience for her um, and how I deeply regret not being able to thank her uh, for that decision because when I, I learned about it as a child, you know, I didn't understand the gravity of the oppression she had experienced as a, a Hispanic woman, as a woman living in poverty, as being married to abusive men. I, I had no understanding and I didn't have the grace to see her as the victim she was in those situations. Um, I definitely see them today. So how, how old were you when you found out about the, this part of your background? So I would say I was about seven. I um, I was told it by her, and then I also was told it by my foster parents. You know, when they thought it was a, an age where I could understand it, and I was I was also kind of in a war zone of an experience myself because I entered foster care for the first time at sixteen months, and um, oh, I went my. into foster care. You know, very idealistic about my birth family. I missed my birth family. I loved my birth family. I longed for them. My mom quickly had more children, so I'm actually one of eleven um, children. Wow. And she had a set of twins the same year I was born. I was born in January of 90 and she had twins in November of 90. So, you know, I did not really have the ability, you know, my soul, I think to process everything as a child. Cause I was just processing the trauma of foster care and the trauma of, of losing my birth family. And, um, I did reunite with my birth family and that's something a lot of people, get confused about with foster care is they, they don't always understand that the goal of foster care is always, always, always reunification with the birth family, the family of origin. Um, and in my case, I, you know, I've written about this extensively, but in my case, that wasn't the best for me to be reunited with my birth family because we had abuse in our family. You know, we had abuse from older brothers and abuse from my mother's husbands. And I think that 
that was the state's goal. And it took the state almost eight years for, for them to terminate my birth mother's rights as a parent. And then I was released for adoption when I was nine years old. So I grew up knowing all my siblings. I grew up knowing my birth mother. I grew up with that loss afterward, after my adoption, having that loss of them. And that's a part of the story that I, I think really shaped my pro-life convictions in a way that I can say I would, you know, shifted me from understanding the woman in crisis to also understanding it as the victim, the child victim in a situation as severe as our, our families was. From where I sit, when you said that you were told at seven, I, I partly cringed and thought, my goodness, I have a son who just turned nine. I can't imagine telling a child that young yes. <laughs> even what abortion is, let alone just all the trauma that would create. So I'm just, I'm curious, as much as you're comfortable sharing, how did finding that out, what are some of the challenges and unique struggles to having that background uh, did you deal with and how has your faith informed the way you dealt with them? Absolutely. You know, I think I held, I definitely held that choice against her um, as a child and I really couldn't understand her. I really, I Mm. didn't have the life experience. I didn't have, I was just the victim in in it myself. So I couldn't see through her eyes of what she was experiencing. So she would tell me, she's like, Sarah, I loved you. I was afraid, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, you knew what you were, to me, it was like, that's not true though. You absolutely knew what abortion was because you had abortions before. And of course, course, you know, being going through what I went through, I kind of grew up very quickly, I would say. So at seven, I mean, I was seven, but I also had gone through so much trauma and so much loss and so much grief and abuse and those things. So I, I grew up very quickly. So I did have those thoughts and those questions so very young. And then after my adoption, I wasn't able as much as I I wish I would have been able to talk with her more about that. I did have a conversation with her when I was a teenager around 17 about that decision. And she was very angry with me for my lack of understanding her situation. And I think the Lord had to bring me to the place I am now. I'm 31 now and I'm a mother myself now. Uh, He had to bring me to a place that I wish I could have been prior to her death to have said, I forgive you and I understand the situation you were in. It was wrong what you did, but I definitely understand what brought you there. And I think also, the Lord brought me to this question, right, which I think is was so critical for me to come to, was would I have had the strength to resist that abortion physician myself wow. if I would have had the life she had? If I would have been an immigrant from Honduras who came to America as a teenager myself, who was in abusive marriages, who already had children in foster care, who were struggling to survive, who were literally eating insects off the floor for food, would have I had the strength to choose life with that kind of oppression myself? And that's the question that brought me the conviction and the ability to forgive her to say, you know what? I I don't know. I pray, I pray I would have had the strength. I pray I would have had the courage to resist that, but I don't know. And that, that really changed everything for me. That changed everything for me. And it brought me to a place of, of grace. And I think that God's given me that gift. I see it as a gift now, because when I look at a woman in crisis, that woman that's walking to that abortion clinic, I can extend that kind of grace to her because I I've seen, I've seen inside that darkness, you know? So I don't know if that helps answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And this relates, and you may in some ways have answered it, but 
how you dealt with this, how does it relate to your coming to faith in principle? Like, did you come to faith apart from this? Was this what drew you to faith? What was that moment where you really owned your faith and said, I'm a follower of Jesus? Wow. Yeah. So I, you know, I encountered Christ myself as a child um, in my my family of origin and my birth family. I think I would say I, I encountered the suffering Savior that we hear about in Isaiah, the Savior who who has who has suffered and experienced rejection and loss and sh- and 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 feels the weight of pain. And that Savior reached out to me, and that encounter really from that moment on. And I don't, you know, I would say I was around that age again, five, five, between five and seven when I had that encounter. And I think realizing that he was a savior for me, that he was going to rescue me in this deep despair I was in, um, that's what brought me to faith. And then I was able to, once Jesus found me and I received saving faith in Jesus, I would say that uh, he walked with me through all of these different journeys I went through with my birth mother of 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 anger, of even hatred at sometimes for her. And he walked with me through that um, as the good shepherd does and um, and really ministered to me. I would say that is what brought me. And, and you know, a lot of people don't have um, where they encounter Christ in a place of, of suffering like that. But for me, it's even hard to remember a time before Christ because it was it was such a it was a rescue moment for me. It was a rescue moment for me. I had no one. I had nothing. I was a destitute child and living in an abusive family. And he reached to me and I, I became my whole life changed, you know, after that encounter. But I think after that happened, I was able to heal. I began that healing journey because I had the Lord bringing me through these different segues of healing and, and, and people. He brought people into my life. My foster parents were Christians. And I, I, a lot of people ask me that question, when was your save? You know, when was the moment that you, um, the Lord found you and you um, received saving faith? And I think, you know, my foster family, they did share the gospel with me. So when I would go back home, I remembered what they had said about the Lord and about Jesus. And I think that was a big part of it. A big part of that journey is them planting those seeds in my heart. You know, even knowing I would have to go back to that place of suffering, they planted those seeds and it fell on good ground. I hope that answers your question. Now, that, that that's really helpful. Um, Sarah, let me go back to your mom a little bit. Uh, in in your article, you refer <clears throat> to her as the archetype of the abortion vulnerable woman, and then, you know, sort of by ex- by extension to that, you you make the point that you know most women who walk into abortion clinics are not villains; they're in similarly tough circumstances like your mom was in. What what are some of the characteristics of that abortion vulnerable woman that your mom epitomized and that you describe? in this article. Absolutely. So, yeah, and that wasn't something I came to realize until the last, I would say, you know, five years or so when I began studying um, abortion, women who choose abortion. What you find out about women who choose abortion is that the majority are economically disadvantaged. Um, up to 75% uh, have experienced poverty. Um, and poverty meaning they rely on food stamps or they rely on social services and charities to to feed their children. And um, that was a big part of it. Uh, also, knowing that the majority of women who choose abortion are often African-American women, women that are Hispanic. It's actually the rate of abortion for women who are Hispanic is double that of white women. So women that go into abortion clinics have experienced 
oppression because of of things that are unrelated to them as a like things they haven't chosen right they haven't chosen that they're hispanic they haven't chosen that they're african-american they were born into a system that unfortunately has prejudices towards them based on their ethnic origin so when i realized that i connected those dots that she was that woman also women who choose abortion like i mentioned earlier have chosen abortion before so they've had an abortion in the past and they're often victims of domestic violence. And that was an interesting correlation because I, you know, my mother's first husband was uh, married her for to get into America, essentially to um, get his 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 citizenship here. Uh, he would beat her. And I I began to study the correlation between women who choose abortion and those who've experienced domestic violence or sexual assault. And it's actually three times the rate of women who choose life or who choose to continue their pregnancy. So she was the perfect candidate for abortion and that she was vulnerable in all these areas of her life. And the majority of women walking into an abortion clinic are those women. And when you begin to understand that, I think, I think it's easy at times to... I think we've, as a society, the pro-life world has become much better at this. But as a society, it's easy to assume that a woman is choosing abortion because of convenience, right? Because she wants to continue her education, because she doesn't want her job to change, because she doesn't want to be a mother, right? And that is definitely at times the case. But statistically speaking, that is not the majority of women walking into an abortion clinic. The majority of women walking into an abortion clinic are not excited to be there. They're not happy to be there. They're devastated and they feel they have no choice but to end the life of their baby. And I think that changes how we reach those women. That changes how we speak to those women. It changes how we look at the abortion issue as a whole. And on our, I would say, our methodology in ending abortion is completely shifted when we realize that. Okay, so talk about that a little bit. How does that frame the way we talk about this, our methodology? What does that mean, practically speaking, when we realize, like you said, that the mother is not the villain here, but she is also a victim? Right. I think, and this is hard because, you know, I work in the pro-life world every single day and our goal is to end abortion. Our goal is to expose what abortion is. And I think there's a definite delicate balance because here's the thing, even though that woman is oppressed and a victim, it doesn't change the, the fact that abortion is a sin against God himself, right? It doesn't change that reality. And I think there's a way to convey that to women and to say that there is a way out for you. There is a way to wholeness for you. That includes choosing life rather than ending the life of your child. Because here's also the reality is ending the life of your child isn't going to change your oppression. It is going to actually further the oppression you're in. And that's the lie, of course, the abortion industry, I think, perpetuates is that ending the life of your baby will bring you some liberation, will free you from these different situations you're in. It'll free you from poverty. It'll free you from uh, domestic violence. It'll free you from um, maybe the systematic injustice you're experiencing because of your race or, or because of your color. Maybe, And that's what they, I guess, feed them when in fact abortion doesn't have the power to do any of those things, right? Only Jesus can deliver and set a person free from those things and bring the resources they need to sustain their family. Only only God can do that. Um, but I think as, sorry, to get back to the question, which is, you know, what can the pro-life movement do to reach those women? It's not diminishing the truth that abortion is killing your baby, but it's also reaching them in a way with grace and saying, I want to help you with your the, the real life you're living right now. Because I think if we ignore those realities that these women are suffering, in grave ways, 
is a big disservice to them because they will look at us like we don't know, we can't understand what they're experiencing. And I've seen that look in women's face, you know, the women that I've worked with that I've seen, it's like, they're telling me, you don't understand what I'm experiencing right now. You don't understand that I'm afraid for my life at home. I'm running from a domestic violence situation. You don't understand that I can't feed my kids. And you're just telling me choose life and it's all going to be better. And that is not what I'm saying. I am saying choose life because that's what God intends for us to do. And he will help you with the oppression afterward. And that that's kind of the message of my writing is in this chapter is to say, I was able to escape this. I would say I often call my family of origin this cocktail of depravity um, because my mother chose life, though. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to escape without that decision to choose life. Right. And that's the first step. And I hope that in my work with other women that they can get to that first step and choose life for their baby and say, you know, Jesus, how can you help me escape this oppression? How can you help me get free of the oppression I'm in? Yeah, that's where my heart is for women. Okay. Yeah, that, that that's helpful, I think, because I think the, the pro-life movement for a long time has been reacting to the way abortion has been marketed as the only alternative for people who are in these kind of circumstances that you describe. And I think it's it's misleading to say that abortion is done for convenience, which mm-hmm. I, is probably is tr- is true for some people, but I don't think that's true for the majority like you're describing. But there's a, I think there's a fine line between understanding and sympathizing with the things that drive a woman to abortion and using those as the justification for abortion being morally acceptable. That, that's a fine line that I think we have to continue to walk because I, you know, no, nothing is gained by alienating the women that we're trying to reach. But I certainly, I don't want to give aid and comfort to the way abortion has been marketed as, a, as the, those factors giving moral justification. How, how have you walked, I know you walked that fine line in your chapter, how have you continued to do that as you've ministered in this area? Well, I think talking to with, with women about real alternatives, like the alternative of infant adoption, um, modern adoption allows for the, you know, I do a lot of work with adoption in Louisiana and promoting adoption in a way that women understand that when they place their baby for adoption today, it looks very different than it did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and they have the opportunity to have a relationship with their baby, giving them an alternative like that and, and, and giving them that information. See, that's another thing my mother lacked is the information to make decisions that might have benefited her. And that's been a big part of my work. I don't get to go into that in my chapter very much, but working with women and, and, and telling them about adoption today, I was not adopted as an infant. I was adopted from foster care, but I do believe if my mother would have had more information about adoption, all of the sorrow she experienced could have been minimized. I'm not saying it could have been fixed, okay? Because that's something a lot of people hesitate with. Because they want to say, well, the solution is, the solution to this moral, this crisis is. And and look, there isn't a simple solution for poverty, for um, parental neglect, for abusive family members, for sickness. They're not simple solutions to any of those things. And there's not, and I'm not saying adoption is the solution for abortion either. I'm saying that adoption is a life-giving alternative Hmm. to abortion. And that there will be sorrow in placing your baby for adoption, yes, but it's a very different sorrow than ending the life of your baby. 
It's very different. And it's, it's, it's what God intent, you know, I, I always say this too. It's, we don't live in Eden. We do not live in a world where we're going to have a perfect formulation mm. where things are going to end up, end up perfectly. And I don't believe if my mother would have placed me for an infinite option or any of her other children, her sorrow would have been gone. But I do believe it would have been, it would have been minimized to some degree. And a lot of women just don't have those resources to know. And that's what the work of pregnancy care centers are. They do a lot of work in informing women about adoption. They work in a lot of social services with like Catholic charities and, and Volunteers of America and some of these big organizations that do a lot of services for women to give these women information. And that's part of my work. I see that as part of my calling is to work with them to help reach women like her because there is a life-giving alternative to abortion and that is adoption. It's not a solution for all the crisis that women face, but it is something that can um, bring hope, I believe. I've got a two-part question for you. Number one, is, is there any reliable data on how many abortion survivors there are? And have you met any others? I have met. Thankfully, I, I'm very fortunate to have met some. I've worked with some. Um, I don't. There isn't a lot of reliable data, unfortunately, because a lot of the records are sealed, or um, a lot of just like me, a lot of 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 children who have experienced that have were placed for adoption later, and they don't come to know about that until later in life. But there is a group called the Abortion Survivors Network that is working to connect abortion survivors with each other. And um, I've been blessed to know them and to find out more. And, and there, I will, I believe in the future we will meet more because there's a lot more means for us to find each other with technology the way it is today. And there are so many more stories coming out even in the last 10 years than there were. You know, I think in the 90s, there was one that I knew of one abortion survivor. Now there's a handful. So I can just imagine even 20 years from now, how many there will be. So Sarah, one one final question for you. Let, let's say that you're sitting across the table from a, say a pregnant teenager who's got a pregnancy that's a surprise that is sort of would fit the classic categories of unwanted. I know you have you have a different notion of what constitutes an unwanted pregnancy, that that's sort mm-hmm. of an oxymoron for you. Uh, but for the expectant mother in really tough circumstances, what, what would you say to her just by way, of, by way of hope and encouragement? You know, if I had a woman that was sitting across from me in a similar situation that my birth mother was today, I would tell her that she's looking at her situation as clearly as she can, but she is in a place of oppression and she has oppressive walls that have pinned her down where she believes that abortion is her only choice. But what's actually true is that one day she will be free of those oppressive walls, like I am free of them today. I was able to escape the oppressive walls of my birth family, but only because my birth mother chose life. See, I only had the opportunity to for the Lord to rescue me because she made the decision to choose life. And that decision is what brought me to where I am today. And although she can't see it today because she has, she's dealing with poverty, she's dealing with maybe things that are unfair to her, maybe domestic violence in her home, that those things can be overcome through faith in Jesus and through, through choosing life for her baby. But choosing life for her baby is the only way 
that she will be, be able to be free. Abortion will not solve those problems she's facing right now. And I'm not saying that because I think that choosing life will be easy for her. It will not be easy. It was not easy for my birth mother to choose life for me, but it gave me the opportunity to talk to you right now and say, you can't overcome this. You can't overcome the fear that you're experiencing and reject abortion and give your baby the opportunity to escape the oppression you're feeling today. Wow, Sarah, this has been so good. And we so appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to tell your story to our listeners. This is, I mean, I know Sean agrees with me on this. This is an incredibly compelling story. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us. I want to commend to our listeners your chapter uh, in, the, in a new book uh, entitled Choose Life, uh, and your chapter is entitled Surviving Abortion. So we, we are so grateful for, for you coming on with us, for your willingness to tell us your story, and may the Lord continue to use you powerfully as he has been already in the lives of some of these very abortion-vulnerable women that you come into contact with. I know our listeners will be remembering the work that you do in their prayers. Uh, and so, so appreciate your, your story and the courageous work that you're involved in. So very grateful, Sarah, for you coming on with us. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including now our fully online bachelor's program in Bible theology and apologetics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our guest, Sarah Zagorski, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.